Chief of Staff here at CSIS, and I also co-directed the Commission on Smart Power. Um, as you may know, the Commission uh, issued its final report on November 6, 2007. It was a Tuesday, exactly one year before the presidential election, and this was on purpose, because the target audience of the report and of the Commission's work overall is the presidential candidates and the next administration. The report has been terrifically received, and we're grateful for that. Um, you can find, we've run out of copies of the report, that's how popular it's been, but you can find copies on our CSIS website or on the Smart Power blog, which is CSISSmartpower.org. Um, but CSIS, like our co-chairs, Commissioners Rich Armitage and Joe Nye, view the report as a starting point, not an end in itself, and that's why we have this ongoing speaker series to bring in prominent voices from different uh, parts of the world and, and looking at different issues to continue to talk about smart power themes. Today we're delighted and honored to have Jeff Gedman, pre President of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, uh, here to talk about the importance of international broadcasting as a critical, critical facet of U.S. public diplomacy. Recent U.S. administrations have struggled to make public diplomacy an effective tool in their soft power toolbox. Especially in recent years, polls show that many people around the world dismiss U.S. government-led public diplomacy as, as propaganda. We must reverse this trend. It is dangerous for us all. Mr. Gedman has taken on this critical task of reviving RFERL to not only help expand objective knowledge about the United States, but also to help strengthen civil societies around the world. Uh, RFE and RL, despite its name, broadcast in 28 languages in some of the world's hotspots, Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, Russia, and even Iran. Despite competition, it is a remarkable 67% uh, market share in Afghanistan, a fact that I have just learned in, in preparing for this event um, and which I find remarkable and quite an achievement. The organization has a critical mission but faces both enormous opportunities and challenges, and we look forward to hearing from Mr. Gedman about his vision for reviving the organization and in the process reinvigorating this critical component of U.S. public diplomacy. Done right, international broadcasting and public diplomacy can and must be a critical part of American smart power. You have his biographical information, so I won't go into detail there. I'll now turn it over to Mr. Gedman who will give opening remarks and then be available to take questions from the audience. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for, for having me here and for the introduction. I did note in the introduction that you said, despite its name, it broadcasts in the following places. Harry, we have to talk about its name and introductions like that. I'm, uh, I'm delighted and honored to be here when I look around the audience. Uh, I see friends and I see a number of people who have tremendous experience and, and expertise, so I'm a little bit humble in, in telling some of you uh, anything about international broadcasting, but I have some thoughts to share and I want to uh, uh, hear from you in the discussion round and, and see what's on your minds. Uh, it's an honor to be part of this series. Thank you very much. It's, it's a great report. I've read the report. It's an important idea to stimulate discussion on this. It's great to be in Washington this week from Prague, and, and I would have to say it is bittersweet, and it is bitter because of the passing, because of the death of Tom Lantos uh, earlier this week. Anybody who cares about soft power, anybody who cares about human rights or democracy promotion uh, will have to get used to life without that fixture. Uh, 
uh, we did something recently with Tom Lantos on Capitol Hill, with Gary Kasparov on press freedom in uh, Russia, and, and it, it just doesn't happen without Tom Lantos. I can tell you more and more and more, and you know that better than I, uh, but I just wanted to recognize that at the top. Um, let me begin with the following. Um, we're in Prague. We have our corporate headquarters here. We have bureaus in 20 countries, but the operational headquarters is in Prague. We have 550 people in Prague. Every morning at 10 a.m. we have an editorial meeting. Uh, we are in, if you know Prague or if you know RFERL that uh, intimately, we're in the old communist parliament. Václav Havel gives it to us for a nickel or a euro a, a month, which is a, a charming footnote to that chapter in history. Every morning, the service directors of all these languages from all these countries gather around a big round table, big windows, fifth floor, overlooking this spectacular city, and we have a daily editorial meeting to get the big view of who is doing what inside the company. About six months ago, and it was right before General Petraeus delivered his report on the surge in Iraq, our reporters were talking a little bit about what do we do What's our competitive advantage? How can we contribute to our broadcast region on this important subject? Somewhere in the middle of that conversation, uh, the gentleman who uh, is responsible for Chechnya uh, raises his hand. He's a very soft-spoken but deep person, if I could put it that way. He's a person of real intellectual and political heft. He says, you know, can I just tell you what my audience is interested in? My audience is not interested in what's going wrong in Iraq because they know that and they have no illusions. He said, my audience is interested in what, if anything, is going right. I thought it was interesting. I took him aside after the meeting and I said, well, I don't know anything about Chechnya. Tell me more. And, you know, very quickly he distilled it this way. He said, you know, for me and my service and my audience, the principal thing that we deliver is not journalism, accuracy, objectivity, truth. We do all that. The principal thing that we deliver is hope. And he says, you're from the United States and you're living a very good life in Prague. I think it's hard to understand, but for many of the folks that we're broadcasting to, our friends, our families, our colleagues, that is the one indispensable co commodity that we have to offer. I would say, now I've been at Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, less than a year, so there's a lot I don't know. I've been there 10, 11 months. But I would tell you that there are two things that have impressed me and I've learned above anything else. Number one, exactly that fact, that we're in the journalism business, the accuracy business, the objectivity business, the information business, the commentary business, but the value that's difficult to talk about or quantify of giving hope through these services to literally millions of people, about 30 million people in our broadcast area. The second thing that I've learned, which has humbled me terribly, is the incredible risk that our journalists take to do what they do. And I was probably a little underinformed or naive. In 11 months on the job, Less than one year for me. We've had two journalists killed in Iraq. We've had one kidnapped. 
Our bureau chief from Baghdad is in Prague right now because the death threats and the stalking got to be too much. We had two journalists go missing for three weeks in Turkmenistan. We've had partners in Russia who have found their offices bugged, have found themselves hauled into black sedans at midnight and harassed. We had one reporter, perhaps ill-advisedly, but understandably, who went back to Iran to visit a 95-year-old mother who's having surgery. She was detained for eight months, interrogated almost daily. By the way, her profession is literary translator. And her politics, I would say, are soft center, are soft left. She's not a notorious regime changer. Uh, we've had uh, it's daily. I'll, I'll stop, actually. Yesterday, I woke up, turned on my little Blackberry. We have a journalist in Croatia who does brilliant work in tracking and reporting objectively, fair-mindedly, on war crimes. He's under death threat. We're bringing him to Prague. It's not the first time. One could go on and on. In Iraq, we, we had recently two journalists come up and visit us for training, two young guys in broken English, I had an interpreter. I don't speak Arabic. I said, look, you've lost two. You had one kidnapped. Your bureau chief is here. You're about 30 years old. Why do you do this? You know what they said? Spontaneously. They both smiled. No kidding. They smiled. They said, we love it. I said, well, you've got to tell me more. You're risk takers. You love it. They said, we love being journalists. It's our country. And Radio Liberty is the only opportunity in Iraq to do this kind of journalism that is fair-minded and independent, that is not beholden to a political party, an ethnic group, a religious group, a tribal group, a foreign power. And I said, well, wait a second, a foreign power? This is funded by the U.S. Congress. You're, you're being financed by a foreign power. And they said, yes, but this foreign power stands by the integrity of what we do and stands by journalistic truth and accuracy and objectivity. They said there's no other opportunity in this country. Size of France, right, 25 million people, that's it. I think for me, it's impressive. It's great to be part of a team and an organization like that. Before I continue, let me, let me make some basic assumptions about the broader topic. These are my assumptions. Number one, that thanks to groups like CSIS and certainly people like Joe Nye, Soft power is acknowledged as an essential element of U.S. foreign policy, an essential element of any kind of broader smart power. I don't think there's any debate or discussion or controversy or contention. There may have been 10 years ago or six or seven or eight, not anymore. Second, as your fine report notice, notes, the, the, the sources of so-called soft power are plentiful, and some of the most important ones don't flow from government. They're private. They're humanitarian, and they, make pow they have powerful effect around the world, consistent and constant with American interests. Finally, and this is not an assumption, this is a contention, this is a suggestion, that, that U.S. broadcasting ought to be viewed consistently and confidently and unapologetically as an absolute essential part of any conversation about soft power. Now, that's a self-interested argument, but nevertheless, let me, let me enlarge that for you a little bit. First of all, uh, broadcasting, international broadcasting, strikes me, is uniquely American as we Americans are uniquely pragmatic. It was set up during the Cold War. It was very simple. 
practical problems and very concrete practical solutions. If you've lived abroad, most of you have, the world envies American pragmatism. I think that's at the root of what we've done in setting up broadcasting. Second of all, American idealism. Not naivete, not indiscriminate interventionism, not, not kind of silly utopianism, but still the idea that the United States has a role, responsibility, and opportunity to somehow make the world a better place. Third, American values. I mean, good heavens, you know, near and dear to every man, woman, child, dog, tree, uh, fireman in this country is the, are the basic ideas of free speech, free press, free flow of information, and seeing all this as the oxygen that fuels and feeds civil society. Without that, it doesn't exist, period, full stop. Next, which is very important to me, because I'm leading an organization of mostly non-Americans. So, you know, they like us, at least a lot of them do, but they're not American. So I can talk all day about American values, and they say, I'm from Uzbekistan. <laughs> I'm, from, I'm from Russia. I'm from Iraq. Uh, I think we are at our best when American values fuse, as they often do, with universal values. And any time I would ever have anybody in my organization say that we're promoting American values, which we are, I always give them this little booklet that I have from my general counsel here, John Lindbergh, in the first row. The United is blue, it's small. Look at Article 18, right, John? The United Nations Universal Charter on Human Rights, drafted by a Canadian, a Lebanese, uh, uh, a Chinese, and it says that the free flow of information ideas across borders, it ain't uniquely American, it's not George W. Bush, it's not Jimmy Carter, it's not Ronald Reagan, that it should be and is a uniformly universal value. Last but not least, I think that this is really all happening in the best of American tradition because of pragmatism, idealism, American values, universal values, but because what we do is American confusion at its best. And anybody who deals with anybody from other countries knows that, that we're always asked, wait a second, is this charity or is this self-interest, right? Because it seems like you guys have double standards or contradictions or you're somehow hypocritical. My answer to that always is we do have double standards, we do have contradictions, we are hypocritical, but it doesn't mean we're insincere actually, there's a big difference. And in fact, it's not charity, international broadcasting, but it's not national interest narrowly defined either. It's a much broader, much more generous definition of self-interest, a kind of enlightened self-interest. Now, what does this mean? Let me talk more practically a little bit. Broadcasting, and I say this very quickly because I think many of you know this and, and perhaps in some ways know it better than I. What are we talking about? In broadcasting, we're talking about radio and television Marti to Cuba. We're talking about the great and famous Voice of America. We're talking about Radio Free Asia that covers countries like North Korea and China and Burma. We're talking about Alhora Television and Radio Sawa that reaches the Middle East. And we're talking about my group, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. All of that together, to give you some context, okay, the radio, the television, the internet, the dozens of countries from Africa to Asia to the Middle East, in terms of budget, is about $700 million. 
Now, I'm here to kind of sell and spin a little bit, but, it, but it's really not hard. I did some quick arithmetic with the help of a colleague yesterday. The sum total of American U.S. broadcasting, if you consider the challenge in Al-Qaeda and the war of ideas and American image and anti-Americanism, is about, I'm told we have problems, I live here, but I'm based in Prague now, I'm told we have, we have problems with the uh, Woodrow Wilson Bridge, right? Want to replace the bridge? Well, U.S. broadcasting is about a third of the amount of money we'll spend to replace the Woodrow Wilson Bridge. Or, I'm from Vienna, Virginia grew up in Vienna. We've talked forever about a metro extension out there. Okay, if my arithmetic is right, it's less than one-fifth what it will cost us to build the metro extension out to where I grew up, Vienna, Virginia. Or, let me be even more specific, my group, my company, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, it is a mighty sum of 80 million U.S. dollars. I like hard power, by the way. I think it plays a central role in American foreign policy. But I like soft power, too. $80 million, if I have it right, it's about four Apache helicopters, okay? Now, let me tell you, now pitching to you as taxpayers, let me tell you a little bit about what you and what we get. I'm a taxpayer also. We have 28 language services. We broadcast to Russia. Belarus, all the Central Asian republics, we dip down through the Middle East. We've got Afghanistan, we've got Iraq, we've got Iran. What are we doing in terms of delivery? We've got radio, as the name suggests, the old Cold War name suggests. We've got some television in some markets, and we have a lot of web, and we have a lot of internet, and increasingly internet that has text and audio and video. What is the method? There's this strange term that I, I know everybody in this room has probably heard of or worked with. The method is surrogate broadcasting. What we do as a group, I'm speaking now of Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty. What we do is broadcast to our region, to our countries, in their languages, the news, the information, I'd like to say the responsible discussion and commentary that they would have if they had a free and independent media, or in some markets, transitional markets, if they had a fully established free and independent media. It's a big difference between us and Voice of America, and I think they're both absolutely important. Voice of America, if I could put it in my shorthand, has always been about us, about America, about American foreign policies, American society and culture and music and art and sport and theater and politics. But surrogate broadcasting, like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, also Radio Free Asia, has always been about them. What they need that they can't get otherwise. It certainly was during the Cold War. The mission is the same as it was during the Cold War. In the abstract, it's promoting democratic values and democratic institutions through accurate, quality, fair-minded journalism. And above all, if I may say, it works. I mean, I've given you kind of this cost argument, but money alone is not the point here. It works. We certainly think it worked during the Cold War, where between so the Soviet Union and Central and Eastern Europe, at any given time, with imperfect measures, we think anywhere from 30 to 50 percent of these populations were relying on our services for information about their
countries. We know that the Soviet Union intimidated people who listened, tried to jam it. We know that Valencia and Havel and Sharansky all said that it was a source of information, but also intellectual nourishment of moral inspiration. And today, uh, we haven't won the war yet in some of these countries, if the war is building democracy. But the evidence is kind of staggering. We have a service that works in Afghanistan. We have 67% of the market in Afghanistan. You know, no market, no listener, no radio for Europe, no radio liberty, 67%. We get bags of mail. I've, I've said to my colleagues, if I'm ever called to testify, Harry, uh, before Congress on Afghanistan, uh, I'm going to do it like Miracle on 34th Street. We get hundreds of letters every week, bags of mail. It's like Santa Claus from kids and professors and taxi drivers and farmers and guys in huts saying, this is great. I can't live without it. It's the music. It's the commentary. It's the information. It's about the economy. It's about daily life. I can't live without it. Both languages. We broadcast in Afghanistan. But by the way, you know, we have security problems in Afghanistan, and you can't make light of these sort of things, but it's, it's still a little bit amusing. We had uh, two journalists that we pulled out recently, brought to Prague to cool things off a little bit, who were being threatened by the Taliban. Uh, they were being threatened with beheading, as they do. You know what they wanted? They didn't want us to stop broadcasting. They wanted equal time. We're coming after you and beheading you if you don't give us regular time on your show. Well, we must be reaching somebody. We must be having some effect. The smaller countries can be hard to measure. You can measure it in different ways. In Belarus, we have a poor, underdeveloped delivery system. You have Europe's last dictatorship. They block the internet. We can't have a bureau there. They go after our journalists. But good heavens, do our Belarusians have fun. They do a game called Reporter for a Day. If in Minsk there's a demonstration, they get the word out, get your cell phone, your little camera, take a picture, send it in, it's on our web in real time, and reaching hundreds of thousands of people. Or they do Editor for a Day recently. They, all the things that we take for granted, very simple things. Example, uh, they invited the wife of a dissident, a jailed dissident, to be editor for a day. She said, great. So she planned a program. It was on the radio. It was on the internet. You know what she wanted to talk about? Something important to her, a personal experience, breast cancer. Okay. But she said there's no outlet here. You, know, you may have dozens of programs and books and self-help and therapy and, and doctors and discussion and debate. Not here. We, we don't have an outlet to talk about those kind of health problems. It was, they did a brilliant job. Sometimes the market test, as I've already suggested, um, can be real but quite grim. Uh, Voice of America had a reporter that shared working with us as a freelancer, a young guy, 26 years old, named Saipov. All he did was human rights. He was an ethnic Uzbek, okay, and doing work in Kyrgyzstan. And before Christmas, shot point blank, killed, leaving a widow, leaving a baby. He was just a human rights reporter not a great and famous dissident, not a regime changer, no, no mischievous activity beyond basic reporting. Uh, by all accounts, it was the Uzbek security services that ordered and carried out the hit with the full cooperation green light of the Kyrgyz security services. It's a terrible thing to say, but I say it. 
It means we're reaching people and the people who want to cut off this oxygen from civil society. They know it. They're afraid of it. They react to it. Let me tell you in conclusion, um, the organization works because it has journalistic independence, but it also has sensible and wise political oversight. The organization works just as the other entities in U.S. broadcasting works. There's a board. It's called the BBG. These broadcast governors are nine in total. It's bipartisan. They are appointed by the President of the United States. They are confirmed by the Senate. And in the case of our entity, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, each one may have a different mission, each one may have a different tradition or, or different culture, but in our case, apart from support, representation, wise counsel, their job is supposed to protect our journalistic independence so that neither the State Department, nor the White House, nor the Pentagon, nor anybody can come in and say, kill that interview, run this program, steer this left, turn it right. It's a fantastic idea, actually. It's a fantastic idea. Finally, how does this kind of line up in, in broader ways with U.S. foreign policy? I'll give you a thought. Take two of our bigger, more important countries, Russia and Iran. They're both tough markets for us. In the case of Russia, we depend heavily on partners called affiliates on the ground to get our programming out. Three years ago, we had 26. Today, we have six. Okay. And what Vladimir Putin and his associates do, the same thing they're doing with their own broadcasting and own journalists and the NGO community, many of whom are represented in this room, they tend not to use, tend not to use, the old brazen tactics of the Soviet Union. They tend to use their own soft power. They send the health inspector to an office. They find a piece of cheese that's been left out for two hours too long. That's a fine. They send the fire inspector. He didn't find anything. Want to be safe? Send him again. Send him again. Send him a fourth time. We've lost affiliates. Putin himself is the Kremlin, I should say, itself is devising terribly shrewd internet strategies, anticipating he who gets kicked off, he who can't go into television, he who can't or can no longer operate in radio will, will consider internet as a primary platform. Kremlin itself is developing ingenious internet strategies, according to the adage, if you can't beat them, join them. They're financing directly and indirectly dozens of groups to populate and overpopulate the landscape. Uh, for the following purpose, as my colleague, a terrific analyst, Daniel Kimmage, puts it, they're trying to create the illusion of choice. There is choice. You want sports? You want music? You want women's magazines? You want travel? You want cuisine? You got it all. It's not the Soviet Union. It's not a monopoly. But when it comes to the political idea of freedom, liberalism, democracy, that's not on the menu. That's not what they're providing. And for us who want to provide it, it becomes increasingly difficult. I think in a moment in Russia, where 70-some percent apparently are fond of Mr. Putin, you have to think carefully how deep that is. You have to think carefully how, how wide that is. And for us in our business, you have to think about the 28 or 30 or 32 percent who are not in love with Putinism, who are not in love with authoritarianism, increasingly have no place to go. Think about Iran for a second. In the case of Iran, they block our internet, they jam our signals, even still, we don't have a bureau inside the country, of course, even still, 
as best we can tell, imperfect, incomplete, polling, focus groups in Dubai and Istanbul, we reach about 13.5% of the population. We hit nerves with good journalism about terrific stories that Iranians can't access otherwise. I'll give you two examples. This summer, there's fuel rationing in Iran. It was an underreported issue in Ahmadinejad's Iran. Well, we could activate informally and discreetly people on the ground inside the country who could do these simple things we take for granted, like grab a microphone and go to a gas line and say, what are you doing? What do you think? What's your impression? You know, who should be blamed for this? Do you have a problem with this? One fellow uh, said to one of our reporters, you know, I've been waiting five hours for gasoline for my car, and this government is sending my tax money to Hezbollah? Sounds like an American, actually. We did another story. This is about four months ago on dog prisons. Dog prisons. The clerics were insisting that the police in Tehran this not being consistent with their vision and version of Islamic law, go after pet owners in public parks, bust the kids, and take away the dogs. Now, we reported that the police were not very happy about this, and it was a pretty important social fissure. We also reported that a lot of Iranians in Tehran thought that that was absolutely crazy. We reported on it. We got it on the radio. We interviewed people. We put it on the web. We got European press to pick it up that played back in Iran. Now, I can't prove cause and effect, but they rescinded the decree. They stopped going after these kids and their dogs. It hit a nerve. It was useful. If they had a free and independent media, we wouldn't play a role. And that's the other thing about us, by the way. You know, we are in the business to go out of business. I don't know if that's good or bad from my perspective, but I think it's good for, for American taxpayers. We are in the business of going out of business when the job is done. We don't broadcast in Poland anymore. We don't broadcast in the Czech Republic anymore. We don't broadcast in the Baltics anymore. I think, you know, broadly, and, and let me leave you with this thought, these things line up very nicely with broad U.S. foreign policy objectives. has nothing to do with Democrats, has nothing to do with Republicans, has something to do with U.S. policy objectives. In particular, if I may say, in the case of Russia and Iran, because we don't know what to do about Russia and Iran. I've got a uh, historian friend who says to me that uh, one of the simple lessons in history for great nations is when you get stuck, keep playing. And I think we're rather stuck with Iran and Russia right now. I don't know if a change in the White House is going to mean a breakthrough. But if you believe that, it sounds plausible to me, what my historian friend tells me. One way to keep playing, it's not the only way, but one way is through soft power, smart power, broadcasting. It opens up another front. It buys time. It supports the right people. It's expression of the right ideas and ideals. And last but not least, the very final point, it is fantastically effective but also fantastically affordable. I mean, I'm pitching here a little bit. Think about the Iranian service alone of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. It's 24-7, it's radio, it's web, it reaches a large audience, it's effective, it costs about $5 million a year. You know what the Iranians spend to jam us? Well, we don't know, but we figure it's at least $6 million and maybe as much as 26 million. So I realize that's self-indulgent to say, I realize that's promoting my own group, but it does seem to me there's a pretty good case to be made that it is soft power, it is very smart, it is very cost efficient, and above all, it seems to me pretty bloody effective. So let me stop with that, 
And as I said, uh, because of the wealth expertise in the room, I'm very eager to hear from you about uh, this or anything related. So thank you. I'll sit over here. opportunity to, to ask you the first question, and it's on the budgeting issue. Um, the, I, obviously, I think most people know here that your budget or the budget for international broadcasting was, was uh, slashed in, after the Cold War in the so-called peace dividend, but we are clearly a nation at war in different ways in different countries. Um, and I'm wondering, the budget that just came out has, has kept, has kept uh, international broadcasting relatively flat, and I'm wondering uh, your opportunity here in Washington, are you going to uh, be talking to people in Congress and the administration about how to, to deal with that? Well, and I'm and, and, and sorry, to follow on, uh, part of that question is how much of that, given the stories that you've just told us, is spent on security and how much is spent on the actual uh, broadcasting side of it? Um, to the first, uh, we have a board, as I said, of Democrats and Republicans, and they do a terrific job, and I'm, gonna, I'm speaking for myself, these are anybody or any institution, they do a terrific job under very difficult circumstances because the budgetary environment is just bloody tough. Okay? It is their job, supported by the heads of these entities, to inform, to educate, to paint the right picture, and I think we do that. The trouble is this flat budget thing, and again, my view, uh, we made a mistake and we haven't corrected the mistake. I mean, my budget, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's budget at the end of the Cold War was about 250. And it slashed to about 70 something. And of course you understand the logic. I mean, good heavens, you know, that's the great thing about this country. The Cold War is over. People don't want new wars, cold or hot. And there's nothing wrong with saying, now it's time to take care of roads and hospitals and schools and health care. I mean, the, the logic is very decent and very honorable and typically American short-sighted, if I may say. And I think that if Americans could understand more about the value that the United States must play in this informational game, don't play, you lose. Play okay, you're in the game. Play well, and you have a chance. I mean, Al Jazeera, that's triple my budget. Good heavens. I mean, they figured something out. So first of all, I understand it, but there's a tradition to this. I think it's short-sighted. I think, um, you know, I was in Prague uh, getting settled last spring, early summer. I was sitting in a cafe. There were three couples. This is my naive take on these things. We can say it's more, more complicated, but I think there's some truth to this. Three couples from Memphis. They're about 60 years old. They're on holiday. This is last May. And we realized I'm from the United States. They're from the United States. I was there with a friend. And they said, what do you do? And I said, well, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty. And they said, well, you know, they're a lawyer and a teacher. And, you know, well, we've heard of that, but remind us what that is. Maybe they're being polite, you know. I tell them what that is. They're not foreign affairs experts. Maybe they're just being kind to me. Okay, it's at a cafe in Prague. They said, good heavens, that sounds great. Worth every penny of our taxpayer money. I think it's a pretty good case to make. And I think as, as the United States realizes that 9-11 was not a blip, it's not temporary, the challenges are bigger, they're longer term, maybe we can gin up more interest. The second question was? was it, it was, I mean, there are oh, security. security concerns and how much of the budget actually has to now go for um, well, security. Well, to well for journalists. us, you know, we're talking to our board and our board has been 
brilliant in getting more support for security. The, the trick is, it's not just a money issue. And I'll, I'll just be very blunt. Uh, give you an example. Uh, the better Jackson Deal is here, he's been you know, one of my informal advisors on Iran. Uh, the better we do on Iran, the harder it is for our journalists. Let me just give you a concrete example. And now it's a trend, and now it's not uncommon, and money alone won't solve the problem. I've got 43 Iranians working for me in Prague. They're monarchists and left-wing social democrats, and they're poets and professors and broadcasters, and they're 22 years old and 70 years old. But they all think that Mullah rule is illiberal and not worthy of a great nation like Iran. They all feel that way. And what happens? It's happened three times in the last six months. A journalist of ours in Prague gets a notice from an Iranian court that he must come home and face charges of, it's kind of a rewriting of the old Soviet law, things like slandering the supreme leader or acting against national security. They're just reporters. Okay? They're just doing informational work. And so what happens? The reporter will say, well, <laughs> I'm not naive. I'm not going back. And so then the court will send him a notice saying, OK, we would like $50,000 US bail. And the reporter will say, well, I'm not doing that. And then the court will say, OK, your aunt's house will do nicely. Uh, the list of tricks that they have uh, is seemingly endless. So to answer your question, yes, we need more money. Yes, we're getting more money for that. And yes, money is part of the solution. But the trouble is, as we, as I said in my, my remarks, my uh, prepared remarks, as we do better with soft power, the autocrats do better with soft power too. They don't just come after you with a baseball bat. They come after you with, in a range of insidious and effective, uh, effective ways, insidious and effective ways. Thank you. So we're going to open it up. If you, uh, we've got microphones. If you could please just say your name and your affiliation. I'll just start up right here in front. My name is Human Saisan from uh, Radio Farda, actually. Uh, you talked about surrogates, radio, and media. In case of Iran, because of not having political relationship and all that during the last 30 years, we have hard time finding reporters inside Iran. And because of that, how can we get to a real surrogate? Uh, radio or any other type of media? What can we go about that challenge? Well, it, it, it's, you know, because you're my colleague and you're in the trenches and you know this better than I, it, it's bloody hard. But, but the trouble is, if we got to what, follow your logic, get to perfect surrogate broadcasting where we have unlimited access and then we're out of business too, because then the, it's so porous and so open and so malleable that we're probably not needed. Um, there are different things. Let me, let me tell you what we did during the Cold War. I've got a gentleman who worked for me, uh, works for me. He's in his 70s now. He's a friend of Václav Havel's. He used to run the Czechoslovak service during the Cold War. Well, they didn't have people formally on the ground in the, the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic, but they had a reasonably well-developed network of people who passed information, verified information, tipped on stories, and gave ideas. Now, during the Cold War like today, it's difficult and dangerous. This gentleman who, who ran the Czech service during the Cold War, uh, the service was infiltrated. They tried to kidnap him. They tried to kidnap his 10-year-old son. He told me, this was a couple months ago over coffee, he said, you know, they, they argued, the secret police files revealed, that I had an invaluable source in Prague <coughs> in the Central Committee, and that's why they wanted to kidnap my 10-year-old son. 
And then he smiled and he said, we did. It was a great source. It was utterly reliable year after year after year. So to answer your question, uh, it is a pretty significant detriment. And you and your colleagues, that you don't have a well-developed network, or the network that does exist informally is constantly endangered or threatened or intimidated, hampers what we can do. Because again, you know better than I, Iranians don't want news from Prague. That's the, the implication of your uh, question. They don't want news from Washington. They want news about their own country with absolute reliability and authenticity. So you, we are doing the best we can. We'd like to develop the network, but it is difficult and dangerous. Up here in front. Mike coming. Thanks. Rima Marhi, I'm a research fellow at the Middle East Institute. Um, I'm Lebanese. I've lived 10 years in the Middle East. Um, I'm sorry to tell you, but I've never used Al Hura, and I'm not sure I even heard about it. But I have frequently used Jazeera and Arabiya. I'm wondering to what extent do you think that you have uh, your uh, you have an audience in the Middle East, and how can you sell soft power in a region where uh, on the ground Hard power, yes, hard power dominates. Next question. <laughs> um, to, to, to the latter, um, it's your neighborhood, not mine, and that's a vexing problem because hard power, you know, uh, is, uh, is central. And so, and by the way, American hard power is central too. We did remove Saddam Hussein from power. The Libyans did give up the nuclear program. And if you infer from the NIE, and the Iranians actually did halt work on their nuclear program, Iraq's invasion may have something to do with that. So we, we know hard power, we do hard power. Um, uh, look, first of all, I don't represent Al Hora per se. So I have a different entity, and so I'm talking for colleagues, that's not fair. Al Hora is new, okay? Al Hora is external. Al Hora is underfunded in terms of, of what Al Jazeera can do. And Al Jazeera has cornered the market in a very powerful and effective way. Now, now, does that mean that we have no numbers or no anecdotal evidence that uh, that Al Hura is doing nothing? No, I don't think that's true. But if you're saying Al Jazeera is the dominant force, it's, it's definitely the dominant force. And there may be others better qualified to talk to me about how you how you increase the the value and the reach of American broadcasting in the Middle East. But it's tough. It's tough. Very tough market. Um, the lady back here. Hi, uh, I'm Mindy Reiser, a sociologist and a writer. I'm curious in terms of our fellow developed countries, what kind of efforts they're doing. We've talked about Al Jazeera, some of the indigenous broadcasting uh, pro programs and projects in different parts of the world. But what about UK? What about Germany? What about Japan, what are they doing? And are they doing a good job? Are we really unique in what we're up to in terms of the developed countries? Well, you know, are we really unique? I'd say no. I mean, first, before broadcasting, you know, think about the NGO world. Um, we have the great National Endowment for Democracy, we have the great Freedom House, we have descendants, some of whom are represented here. But, but the Germans actually, you know, early on were pretty good in foundation work in promoting and supporting civil society throughout the world. And, and they did so in Spain, and they did so in Portugal, and it was the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung, and it was the uh, Friedrich Ebert Stiftung, the Social Democrats, and they still do. So, so on the NGO side, uh, I would say, uh, you know, you can judge yourself in what instances, who's doing what, and how effective it is. 
but they are in the game and they have been in the game, and in some cases, uh, wisely earlier than us. In broadcasting, uh, it's a little bit different. There's Deutsche Welle, for example. There's BBC. Now, th this is a completely self-serving remark, but I'm going to make it to you anyway because it's, it's my chance to be a little <laughs> self-serving for the next few minutes. Um, our Iranian, who was detained, the one who was visiting her 95-year-old mother, uh, the interrogator before they parted in Tehran, they released her after eight months. Sorry, I can't see you over there. Um, they said to her, um, if you must go back to your current station, it's called Radio Farda tomorrow, so it's our service. Uh, if you must go back there, the interrogator said to her, um, you should really report only on light international news, but nothing domestic. And then the second thing they said to her is, but anyway, why don't you go get a job with Deutsche Welle or BBC? So, you know, those are fine services with fine people and fine missions, but, but you know, I, of course, took it as a compliment. We must have a little bit of better handle on the pulse of things in some way. Um, you know, we are probably a, a bit, compared to those services, well, let's be specific. Look at the BBC Iran. They broadcast in Persian about six and a half hours a day. Our mission is to promote democratic values and institutions. You can argue what that means in the practical, but that's what we're about doing. That's not the mission of BBC Persian. If you look at their mission statement in the words of their general director, they say, our job in Persian is to inform Iranians about world news and the important role Iran plays in the region. And, and I, I can't prove this to you, but I bet you that if we're doing about 80% domestic and 20% international, that you're nodding, they're doing about the opposite. In the back, sir. Gregory Hall from Radio Free Asia. Uh, I want to turn the focus from Europe to Asia since we are dealing with a, another big brother, China, which is obviously more powerful than uh, Europe, uh, than, than Russia, since they are um, adopting the so-called the illusion of choice in China. They have so many, a variety of entertainment news, whatever uh, indecency you can find, even on the internet. So this year, uh, since we have some self-interest here, the BBG is going to sack a tens of the Tibetan service and the Cantonese. So, you know, when we are dealing with China, an uh, even bigger brother than Russia, and after in this post-Cold War era, and the US is going to build a so-called strategical uh, partnership with China. So, uh, what can we do? as, you know, uh, to bring information to China. How can we deal with an even bigger brother than, than Russia, since China is so strong, we have no way in bringing information, penalize, uh, uh, penetrate into the uh, different region, like Xinjiang, uh, Tibet, and even in the Guangdong area. That's why mm -hmm. the BBC said, okay, even the BBC, the, uh, the BBC have said is uh, some of the, their Chinese service. So why shouldn't, why should the U.S. keep, uh, you know, still uh, the the, the uh, uh, Mandarin, the Canton service, which is, you know, it will annoy the Chinese government. It's not healthy in establishing a so-called strategical relationship, the partnership with China. So do you agree with the kind of, you know, cutting back the Tibetan and sacking the whole Cantonese, you know, since China is much, much bigger is more powerful, is Boy, I hope more there are no powerful. Russians in this audience. You're going to hurt somebody's feelings. You said that about three times now. Um, 
Let me take the part of the, the question that maybe I can try to answer and, and leave the, the rest for others because I, I'm not a China expert. I, I'm not the president of Radio Free Asia and, and you've got a great service there and Libby Lewis is a great president. Um, I, I think, let me tell you what I think. Are, I'll answer what I want to answer and you'll see if it fits your question. First of all, we have an interest doing what we're doing because we're not Deutsche Welle, we're not BBC, we're not the others, and we have an interest in, in making sure that what we do as broadcast entities is consistent and consonant with American interests. That's number one. Number two, uh, I take your point that the Chinese are playing the Russian game. Maybe the Russians are playing the Chinese game. And I, I don't know what to say about that because you know I think we'd all agree in this room, retreat is not an option, but they are getting ruthlessly sophisticated. I, I mean, I think also in China, the NGO scene, and there's been in recent years, as my understanding, a proliferation of NGOs, environmental, you name it, but not political NGOs that challenge the monopoly of the Communist Party. There is, there is a parallel to Russia. The th but, but you know, what do you do? You, you don't duck and retreat. You have to figure out if they're clever and they have measures, we have to come up with countermeasures. The last point, if I understood you correctly, you know, with Russia and China, we do have a dilemma, right? But this is the, the walking and chewing gum at the same time. Or this is the accepting the, the dissonance and hypocrisy but moving ahead. You know, we do, the United States does have strategic relationships with these uh, countries. And the United States uh, will most obviously not suddenly transform itself into Amnesty International, a great institution, by the way. But we have trade relations. We have hard security relations. We have interconnectivity in economic and banking and through other allies, including in Europe. There are, in some instances, important uh, areas of cooperation in the war on terror. So no one, Democrat, Republican, Barack Obama, uh, this Bush or the other Bush, is going to tear all that up and say, let's go on a great human rights uh, crusade. Let's take the Pentagon budget and give it to international broadcasting. So there's going to be balancing. There's going to be contradiction. But, but I think, again, as I said in my notes, that that's the contradiction that we Americans are best at. I mean, no one can do that contradiction like we can. Ronald Reagan did that, right? Ronald Reagan did not break bilateral ties with the Soviet Union. Ronald Reagan did not say, I'm not going to talk to Gorbachev. He did not stand up people at the summits. He said, we're going to negotiate, talk, dialogue, all those things in a, in a vigorous, robust, parallel track we're going to do human rights. We're going to insist on Helsinki. I'm going to meet with students in Moscow. We're going to push. Everybody said, you can't do one. You've got to pick one. No, you can do both. And it's untidy and, and, and a little bit chaotic or contradictory, but you can definitely do both. I think with Russia and China, we're in that area where we have to do both and live with the untidiness. We, we often find, uh, although we're not an advocacy organization, we often find the CSIS website blocked in China. and. Uh, for a few days, and then it reappears, and we're uh, <laughs> so it's some example. of these things are a little bit of a mystery. Perfect but, uh, example. Um, other questions? I know I saw a lot of hands up here. This gentleman's been very patient. Thank you, Michael Allen from the uh, the Great National Endowment for Democracy. Thanks for the plug. Um, <laughs> you mentioned on the fact that Dan Kimmage's uh, I agree, excellent analysis. The fact that the Kremlin is increasingly proactive in this field now. Um, I think this applies to the other authoritarian regimes as well, whether it's China projecting soft power through its Confucius Institutes and development <coughs> projects in Africa and so on, or for that matter, Iran funding Almanah as well as the TV station and so on. So the authoritarians are becoming much more sophisticated operationally, but also become much more sophisticated ideologically through the course of the year. Look at the 
narratives that they're not against democracy. They uphold their particular form of sovereign democracy in Russia or Islamic democracy in Iran. To what extent does the fact that this is now contested terrain, as it were, operationally and ideologically, how does that impact on the work that you do? Do you find that that affects the way that you write the stories, affects your work in the field? I think it has impact, Michael. First of all, um, some of this is not new. The sovereign democracy, the managed democracy, I mean, the funny thing, I'm stating the obvious, the, the democracy thing has been around for decades now. I mean, the worst dictatorships in the world for years have felt utterly obligated. To, you know, the more people's republic and democratic in it, probably the less democratic it is. But, but for years and decades, no one's wanted to stand up and say, well, we advocate dictatorship, and this is the dictatorship of so-and-so. It's the people's republic of you know, German democratic republic and so forth. So that they're inventing new terms or collocations like managed democracy, sovereign democracy, nothing new variation on theme. Here's what I think. Uh, some of you probably know Lauren Craner, who's the president of the International Public Institute, former assistant secretary of state for human rights. He had a nice formulation for this. He said to me recently, just according to what you're saying, Michael, he said, really, it's as if the thugs and dictators of the world are doing a weekly conference call these days, from Chavez to Putin. Okay? They saw the colored revolutions, right? Tulip, cedar, orange, Ukraine. And they saw the power of soft power, NGOs, civil society, human rights, information technology, iPods, emails. They saw that the Slovaks who dumped Mechiar were helping the Serbs dump Milosevic. And then both of those are working with the Belarusians to dump theirs. I mean, it's true, actually. It's a fantastic, vibrant, natural, spontaneous, organic network. It's as if, Lauren says, they observed all that and said, bloody hell. I mean, this was effective. They didn't fire a shot. They mobilized people. They found resonance in public opinion. That's important. And now we need countermeasures. We need to compare notes. In that court of public opinion, we can always send in tanks, and we can torture people, and we can send people to Siberia, which Putin still does. Okay? Hasn't given up on everything. He's, he's eclectic. Okay? They still do that. He's pragmatic. But, but it's as if they said, but boy, we're going to get a lot more done through very shrewd, sophisticated application of our own soft power techniques. Below the radar screen, indirect, with plausible deniability. Look, with us and Russia, I can tell you, as God is my witness, they're closing us out of business. And I can get a Russian representative here from the embassy, I'm certain, who would be well prepared and briefed and say, well, Mr. Gedman, in your license agreement, signed on October 1st, 1998, if you look at page 75, and we told you three times that you must dot this I, but you crossed the I. You didn't dot the I, and we believe in rule of law. Don't you believe in rule of law? Okay. So what do we have to do? You know, Diane Zeleny, my colleague, just uh, convened a terrific, I'm flattering everybody here, a terrific conference with Freedom House, Ellen Bork, and others about four weeks ago on uh, the soft power techniques of authoritarian regimes going after NGOs, going after civil society, going after broadcasting. And what can we learn? Because if they learn from the last round, we have to learn too. And it's a moving target. It's an important subject. Thank you. Sir, in the corner. Sorry, can't. Could you stand up so? Uh, I'll stand up. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm Luke Simons. I'm writing a book on the rise of Islamic fundamentalism 
specifically in Southeast Asia. Uh, I, was, I was interested, if I got you right, I, I think you said that what you're doing is essentially what you did during the Cold War. Um, in, in my own reporting, uh, it's obvious that Muslims all over the world are very suspect uh, of this administration and its foreign policy in general, specifically in the Middle East. And I'm wondering if you, if you meant that. Did you mean that you really are doing the same thing that you've always done? Or are you tailoring um, your efforts, particularly vis-a-vis -vis your, your markets in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, Iran? And if so, if you could give us some sense of how. Uh, and, and if you have any, any sense, I'm going to push this all the way. If you have any sense of uh, whether you're really changing minds, whether you're getting any, you're making, uh, making any, tread, uh, catching any um, sense of change uh, mm -hmm. as, far as, as far as your listeners and your audiences are, mm -hmm. are concerned. <clears throat> um, th that's a great question. The, the trick, this is my view, but I'm confident about my view, so I'm going to share it with you. <clears throat> my view, and I don't think this is different than Cold War, the, the trick of surrogate broadcasting you have to have fine journalists and fine journalistic leadership who know these countries and know these languages. I mean, I don't know the 28 languages. And we've got a terrific management team. Between us, we know a couple or a few. That's no different than the Cold War. Okay? You've got to have terrific journalists with terrific journalistic leadership. You have to make sure that they understand the basic moral compass and basic political and intellectual compass. And then you have to create space for them to find their own language, to speak to their own people in their own country. Because the voice of Jeff Gedman, or the voice of President Bush, or President Clinton, or President whomever, is not the voice that's going to resonate or make the case. It has to be, and, and, and there has to be space for this. And there's risk in that. I mean, remember, I'm, I'm being you know, very direct with you. R remember with these services, let me step back from the Cold War. It's, it's worth a quick digression. You know, because we won the Cold War and it's uniformly believed broadcasting played a role, all the details seem unimportant now. Read Arch Puddington's terrific book on the history of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Good God, what a mess, okay? What great services and magnificent leadership and what a mess. The Russian service, the Soviet service, filled with spies, anti-Semites, nationalists who hated communism but didn't exactly love democracy, and were a little ambivalent about the United States at times too. Tactical relationships, divisions, vanities, rivalries, left to right. It is inherent, it is the nature of immigrant broadcasting, so first of all. Second of all, with that very difficult puzzle you still must give them space to talk to their own people in their own languages. And third of all, you can't impose anything. It goes with point two. I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm kind of going out on a limb because I don't even know what the answer to my question is myself. We have pretty intense editorial meetings. I had Afghans, great service, reporting to me recently about a case in the Afghan press about a fellow accused of blasphemy sentenced to death. 
and good heavens, there the debate be begins. What, what, do we have a position on the death penalty, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty? The answer is no. Does the Afghan service, man for man, women for women, have positions and feelings about the death penalty? As I've learned, quite, quite evidently, yes. And then on the subject of blasphemy, okay, they laid out a very rich argument to me on how terribly complicated this debate is, not arguing against what we stand for, unapologetically, transparency, due process, okay, legal representation. But they laid out for me a very complicated case, which, which really result in the conclusion it's not one, there's no one size fits all. Now to your Middle East. So, so there's no one size formula that fits all these cultures and all these cases where I can uh, cookie cutter it and say, oh, blasphemy, death penalty? Well, here's the text. Go with that. Okay. It, it has to be a more nuanced approach without sacrificing the core principles, without sacrificing the fundamental tenets of the organization. Now, with the Middle East, you ask, are we successful? Gee, you know, it's hard to measure. We, we poll as best we can. We do telephone polling, we do focus groups, and we have people who read our websites and listen to us. So, so first of all, is that a measure of success? Is it influenced in the right way? You know, hard to say, but that's some connectivity, that's some effect. Uh, in the focus groups, take it with a grain of salt, I, you know, hasten to add, we get regular and consistent feedback that there, there is a constituency, and certainly in the case of Iran, and you know, I have colleagues from, from Iran here, certainly in the case of Iran, for example, that there is a constituency inside this country for what I would call a decent, accountable government, what I would call a more liberal form, a more tolerant form, a more inclusive form, a more pluralistic form. Now, is that the American system? No. It's probably not the Japanese system either. It's probably not the West German, parliament, German parliamentary system either. But it's not the Mullah system. And they're looking for space for ideas, they're looking for space for information. They're looking for space for commentary, analysis, debate, illumination, and they're coming to us. But, but gee, it, it, you know, is it getting traction? Um, are they suspicious that it might come from the United States? I think that's all true too at the same time. Thank you. Other questions? Over, over here, in the front. Uh, since it's Valentine's Day, I feel an obligation to ask you a question about love. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on uh, yesterday's lower backside kissing competition hosted by Mr. Putin in the form of a press conference that lasted four hours. How do we undermine those journalists who are willing to sit around and uh, share a laugh with a person who is responsible for heavy persecution and prosecution of their colleagues. How do we do that? Where are you from? Uh, <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I, I like the spirit of the question. I'm not sure I understood the question. Um, the question is, how do we... Undermine the work, the, not the work, the, yes, the work of those journalists who are willing to sit around for four hours and... Uh, yeah, well, I, I don't know in that particular instance because I didn't uh, uh, follow that, but I'll tell you what we did. We're, th we're thinking a lot about our Russia services these days. We're thinking about when we, you don't have television, you don't have radio, and you have internet, 
what is the content, content and programming. I'll just give you an example. We went out and commissioned a bunch of fine papers by very interesting people on what we do and how we can improve it. Dan Applebaum from Washington Post and uh, Enders Wembush from the Hudson Institute and Paul Quinn Judge wrote for The Guardian and Time Magazine. He's now with the International Crisis Group. One thing they all came up with is create an, help create an alternative narrative because there's an audience for an alternative narrative and they're not getting it make it credible, make it honest, make it accurate, make it fair-minded, and let people know that the one thing they're getting on subject X, X from the monopolized media may have an alternative explanation or set of facts. So that's one thing you can do. I mean, look, you have to play in the game, and you have to keep chipping away. <coughs> It, the commission report um, is, is forward, tries to be forward-looking and looking at what the next administration uh, could do differently or uh, rejigger some priorities. And I'm wondering what your view is what should happen with USIA. Um, I, don't, I don't have a view. Okay. I, and, and for a variety of reasons, I'm not entering into that debate. Okay, I don't have a view. <laughs> Are there any other questions? But it's a good debate. Okay. <laughs> Questions in the back? I, I mean, I do, I do have it. Okay. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm very wary of recreating USIA. And I'll tell you why. This, again, I'm, I'm master of stating the obvious. Um, the, this is coming from someone who's not of the US government. You know, we, we actually are a 501c3. We're a grantee of the federal government. We're funded by the Congress, but we have a, a certain measure of independence. Um, I think, I'll, I'll put two propositions to you. Number one, good heavens, government, whether you reinstate USIA or not, must play a very important role in this ideas game, information game, war of ideas game, obviously, okay? And we have to keep retooling and refining and improving all the time, and that's your job, and you're doing a great job. But, but the problem, it seems to me, and again, here's where stating the obvious comes in, uh, the world has changed so dramatically and radically technologies in the last 5 and 10 and 12 and 14 years, that, that the notion that even if you get the perfected bureaucracy with the best people, that it's going to do the trick, it's not. It, it, it's a faster game now. It, it's like going from college to pro basketball. The court shrinks, the guys are taller, and, and slam dunks aren't important anymore because they can all do it. Okay. So it seems, I mean, look, I, I had a conversation once as way of illustration a couple years ago. Dan Coates, Indiana Senator, Ambassador to Germany. I was in Berlin. I was director of the Aspen Institute. Dan Coates said to me, you know, there's a, a piece on the front page above the fold on the Tagesspiegel of casualties in Iraq uh, trumpeting how many innocent people Americans have killed. The, the, the data is not right. The, 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 the spin they're putting on it is terribly harmful and mischievous. And Dan Coates says, I need as an ambassador to rebut that immediately. I need a column in the paper the next day. And he says, but the State Department won't allow that. It's too slow and, and all these checks and balances. So then, as I understand, Diane, you can correct me, the State Department, Karen Hughes, and you work for Karen Hughes, comes along, corrects that, streamlines it, gives them much more latitude to speed up the game. And so that's definitely important. You have to do that. You know, that that's a victory. But it's a limited victory because the newspaper. Gee, you know, before that paper even went to bed the night before, the blogosphere was on a tear, virally spreading like crazy. All I'm saying is the Daniel Kimmage thing. If, if you've seen Kimmage's report on how 
the Sunni insurgents and al-Qaeda use the internet in Iraq, what, what do they do? They're not expensive, but they're small, they're nimble, they're fast, they're decentralized, they're fantastic when it comes to music, sound, imagery, symbols, and they're on a tear. They're on a tear. So you know, reinvent government and get the right people. It, it's absolutely essential. Don't misunderstand me. But we better start thinking in creative and complementary ways outside of government because speed really does kill. And in this case, the best government institution in the world is just not going to keep up with that stuff. Not anymore. That leads me to my, my next question. And then I will have a final question here because we do have you for a few more minutes and then we're going to keep you, which is about new technologies. And I, I liked your example from uh, Belarus where you have a, a citizen essentially giving a YouTube type video. Right. How else is your organization keeping up with new media and, and, and competing in, that in the blogosphere, as you say, um, where other organizations are, are moving fast? Everything that everybody else knows and, and what they're doing. I mean, blogging is important to us, and, and of course, I think you know as well as I. It's not the blogging, it's the blogger. You know, there, there are ample numbers of blogs. It's not the blog, it's the blogger. Get a smart person with force of personality, with something to say, with passion, who can articulate things, he or she can develop a, sorry, uh, a following. Um, we, we do SMS messaging. Uh, we're hoping more and more as, the, as technologies develop in our country that people will be able to download things, as they do already here on podcasts. I mean, anything and everything that, that gets it out there faster. I had a friend who came back from Iraq recently. He was in northern Iraq, Kurdistan. He said to me, uh, everywhere he went, bus stop, cafe, restaurant, office, Everybody was using their cell phone, you, you know all this, for video content. He said they're watching two things, pornography, okay, and jihadist websites. That was what was in. That was what was cool. That's what people were talking about or laughing about, telling stories about. You have to be in that market. Thank you. And a final question from the gentleman right here. Thank you very much. My name is Shola Omoli. I'm Chevron and I'm a Nigerian. Um, in your about half an hour of presentation, you mentioned Africa just one time. And I asked your colleague here if you covered Africa, and he said, no. I think it's within the rights of US Congress and Radio Europe, Radio Liberty, to determine its area of coverage. Um, in town here, there's a lot of Discussion is dominated by China, Middle East, geopolitics of Iran, Iraq, and all of that. Um, and there is a controversy surrounding the creation of AFRICOM because for many, many years, uh, that continent has been neglected, sidelined. But the fundamentalism that exists in the Middle East certainly exists in some countries in Africa, or it can be transported uh, to some countries in Africa. Is there a reason why Africa is not covered by your radio station? Well, well, first of all, I like this man. <laughs> um, uh, first of all, Voice of America. There is you know, access for coverage of Africa. My group, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, is not. Why? Well, history had us projecting to Cold War countries in the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe. It just was what it was by virtue of the fact that the Soviet Union was there, East Germany and the, the, the Soviet bloc was there, and Congress was interested in that part. I am personally interested, now, now I've got a colleague here representing the board, don't throw a sponge at me, but, but you know, I, I 
happen to adore surrogate broadcasting. I adore Voice of America and the other missions too. They're complementary. They're mutually reinforcing. You, know, you can't live without you know, one or the other. But, but I personally believe that there's a very compelling case for more surrogate broadcasting. And you said it best, you know, including in your country, you know better than I. It's not just philanthropy. It's a strategic interest of the United States. And just to mention the one issue you brought up, when you think about al-Qaeda and you think about the spread of Islamic extremism, it's not localized in the Middle East. We know that. And we know about Yemen, and we know about Somalia, and we know about your country a little bit. And, and so, you know, I'm just telling you, with me, you're pushing on an open door. And if you want to give me your card, and we'll visit our board, and we'll stop by Congress, we're ready to do business. Thank you. Great. Well, I want to um, thank you so much. Everything you've talked about in the, in the mission of your organization is very much in the spirit of uh, the work of the uh, Smart Power Commission and the ongoing work that CSIS is doing in this area. So we're really delighted and honored to have you here today. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks. 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 Thanks.